Emily Maguire is from Sydney and welcome. Thank you. Emily Maguire has set, uh, set her book halfway between Sydney and Melbourne. You've given this township, Strathdee, a population of 3,000, a made-up name and why make it there? <laughs> um, I really wanted it to be a place that felt familiar, um, that felt like one of those towns on the Hume Highway that any of us who've done the long drive between Sydney and Melbourne have stopped at. Um, but because all kinds of um, sinister and unpleasant things happen there, <laughs> I didn't want to impose those events on a real place. So <laughs> so cool. I've, I've kind of put it pretty much smack bang where I think maybe Takata is. Um, but that, of course, is a tiny, tiny town and bears no resemblance whatsoever to my Strathdee. fictional Strathdee. <laughs> the story starts with the police knocking at Chris's door. She's not expecting them to bring her cake or wine. She knew it was bad news. What was it? So the news is that her uh, younger sister, who's been missing for a couple of days, um, has been found dead. So Chris was taken to the morgue. As the author, you chose not to be descriptive here about the state the body was in. Why was that? Uh, there's a couple of reasons. From the outset, I wanted to write at least in part about the way that the media and also sometimes fiction books and TV shows um, can really exploit the deaths of women, particularly attractive young women, um, as a selling point and can be really gratuitous and kind of titillating. So it was really important to me writing about the subject not to also play into that. Uh, so I never wanted to do that. But the other thing is that it's mostly told through the point of view of Chris, who is the dead woman's sister. Her words from your book, go ahead and read the goddamn coroner's report and look up those obscene photos for yourself. I'm not your pornographer. Yeah, exactly. So it, it did. The more I got into her voice, the more it felt like the completely natural thing because when it comes to the description of what actually happened to her sister, you know, understandably her mind flees from that and doesn't want to dwell on it and is particularly disgusted. The more and more the media circus descends and, and people want to dwell on that. Yeah, well, with a murder like this, and that's exactly what happened in Strathodee. There were swarms of TV cameras and journalists all want wanting photos and a story. What did they actually find out about Bella? Well, at first glimpse, Bella is what, in air quotes, would be considered a perfect victim. Um, yeah. She's, you know... Um, she's attractive. She has a really kind of caring profession working in an old people's home. Um, she's not known to be promiscuous or a drug user or any of those things that can be quite wrongly used to place blame on victims. Mm. Um, but of course that doesn't make for a very good story. So the media does <laughs> keep digging and, and even when they can't get stuff on her, unfortunately it's her sister, Chris, who is the next Absolutely. of kin who becomes the center of that. And she is, um, all the things that Bella is on in terms of being quite an inappropriate woman in many people's eyes. One journalist's headline, beautiful Bella viciously mauled is by May Norman. Now she has run basically to the story straight out from Sydney but she's also running from something else isn't she? Mm, so the main journalist character May I wanted to make her a fully human character as well because it is quite easy to kind of demonise the media as some homogenous kind of pack when it comes to these stories so I wanted to get inside you know an individual journalist and acknowledge like you know 
they're people too and have all kinds of stuff going on in their lives. She's running from a really um, ill-considered affair with a married man. So he's very happy to actually be in this, um, I think she describes it as a fly-spec country town, (laughs) (laughs) Um, to to escape from something in her personal life. But of course, you know, being a human being, she does get drawn into um, the the story in ways that maybe a yeah, get get under her skin. You mentioned Chris, her sister. Now, Chris is, Chris describes Bella as the prettiest thing anyone in this whole of a town <laughs> was ever likely to see. You also mentioned Chris is quite different to Bella. Mm. Well, let's talk about her physically. How is she different? Well, um, she's... Um Got very big breasts. It's a defining feature of Chris, which she thinks of herself that way. (laughs) Emily, you've written about this so beautifully. Once again, I'm going to read quotes. Big breasted. Who knew people, uh, uh, Chris knew people who talked to her breasts. When she was younger, she would keep them covered. But, you know, a mountain range covered in snow is still a mountain range. I barely notice when men speak to my chest. Women shoot death stares at it and people of both sexes treat me like I have brain damage. (laughs) I think, you know, big-breasted women out there, (laughs) I think you've written exactly what they feel a lot of the time. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) So what about Chris herself? Mm, so she's a, a complicated person, as as most of us are when you really dig in. Um, she's someone who hasn't had an easy life. She um, grew up, her and her younger sister, with their single mum who often had some pretty unpleasant boyfriends who were living in the house. Um, she's made a life for herself, though, in this small town. She works in the pub. She gets along with pretty much everyone there. Um, she sometimes brings men home, which is one of the things that the police really pick on. Um, when the investigation starts. But, she, she talks yeah. about herself. I'm sorry, I'm no. doing another quote of your book no, because please. I thought Go it ahead. was good. <laughs> this is Chris. I'm often being told I'm too trusting, too generous, too open. I used to think these were compliments, but I've come to realise that trusting means stupid, generous means easy, and open means shameless. Now, you've talked about a trucking br- friends that she sometimes brings home. What's happened there? So um, so she um, was married to a fellow called Nate who comes back into the story, but they're now divorced. Um, and soon after she they broke up, she started bringing men home for basically one night stands just for a bit of fun and um, kind of accidentally finds herself as a kind of casual sex worker when one of these guys... Um, decides to leave us some money one time and she thinks that's an all right deal for something she's enjoying anyway. But it's it's not really a way she thinks of herself or as a profession. Mm. Um, it's just something that, that kind of happened and, and she goes along with. So she's saving up for a deposit on a house that she wants to share with Belle. Mm. And she imagined, imagine that, the barmaid and the nurse's aide, daughters of a drunken welfare queen and a couple of no good womanizers, both of us homeowners. What's the only thing that Chris got from her father? Well, she got her name. And that's it. Um, And only, you know, to be specific, her first name because, um, yeah, he was completely out of the picture by the time he um, got her teenage mother pregnant. So her mother gave her his first name, which was Chris. So this book by Emily Maguire called An Isolated Incident, we're now looking at a victim, we're looking at uh, the detectives, but it's not a detective story, is it? 
No, it's not a murder mystery in that sense. I mean, there's an investigation that is ongoing, but it's in the background. It's not the foreground of the story. We sort of see the ripple effects of Mm. the death and Mm. what it does within the community. Yeah, and that was always the intention. I mean, I read a lot of crime fiction and also watch a lot of um, TV dramas, the kind of prestige dramas we've had a lot of lately, which are crime stories. Um, But I found myself really haunted, I guess, by how many dead bodies, particularly of young, beautiful women, appear or often start those stories and then we move on to the investigation. And and I really wanted to write about that young woman or at least the hole that she leaves in the world more than the puzzle of what happened. And Chris is distraught. Mm. You know, her sister Bella is... um, Well, she's been sister and mother to Bella, really, because Bella's 12 years uh, younger. So poor Chris, she looks in distractions in alcohol. Mm -hmm. Oh, hits that Mm -hmm. hard. But she's done that before. Yeah. On another time of grief she had. Yeah. When she knew she couldn't have children. Yeah, so she has a history of heavy drinking and um, it was one of the things that's happened in the in the backstory of the book, I guess, with, with her ex-husband, Nate, when she discovered she couldn't have children and mm-hmm. he, he himself was an ex-alcoholic uh, or, an, you know, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, I guess, but an ex-drinker. Yeah. Um, but once she discovers that, she really hits the bottle again and that's one of the breaking points in their relationship. Um, but it's also something that Bella helped her out of. Um, mm. So it's kind of a particular conflicted thing now that that Bella's gone that it means there's no one there to stop her drinking but she kind of knows that Bella would be pretty horrified and disgusted with her. And here's Nate from once again a quote the love of my life smasher of my heart there he stood my mighty tree of a man with tears splashing down his bushranger's beard. He refuses to speak to the media and encourages um Chris not to speak to the media. He sort of seems very off-putting to the media. So the media search out his history. Sort of they want to sort of maybe blame him. Mm. And what do they find in his history? Well, they find that um, he has a history of violence against women. He's actually been jailed for a, for an assault on an ex-girlfriend. Um, and... This obviously, you know, is is played out in full and without any context whatsoever in the media reporting um, to the extent that, you know, he's now being linked without anyone coming right out and saying it with, you know, as a suspect um, in Bella's murder. Look, we have so many of the community who know her and we hear even one of the young detectives knew her quite Mm. well. And in contrast to this, there's a whole lot of these shrines by the community, put up at the nursing home that she works at and the uh, the spot that she was killed at. And it's, it, it's, it, it's hard, isn't it? Mm, mm. Because you wrote beautifully about what Chris thought about these shrines. Mm. That by people who didn't know Bella. Yeah, she's she's bewildered by them. Um, and that's something I, I mean, I haven't lost anyone in, in such a terrible circumstance, thank God, but um, it, it's something I find quite bewildering too, actually. I mean, quite beautiful, but also mm. quite confusing um, to, to think what makes people reach out and, and go to a place and leave memorials. And it is a beautiful thing, but it, it does confuse me, like, why this person and not all the others who die in different circumstances, maybe. And then it did lead me to wondering if I was, you know, the closest person to to the victim or to the dead person, how would I feel seeing all these messages to someone that, you know, I, I think I would feel, even while appreciating the sentiment behind it, I think I would feel kind of like, you didn't know her. 
You well, haven't lost anything. That's that's actually it's, mm. yeah. So this contrast about Chris's reaction to it, especially to the roses, which we won't go in because mm-hmm. I thought that was just a lovely, lovely, lovely piece. So we get to Bella's funeral. Chris tells us her story in the first person, and we get the sense of love and the hurt that she feels. We also get the journalist's report, which gives us a first-hand account, but from a different perspective. That was cleverly done. Oh, thank you. How did you, you know, where, how did that idea of having the reports and then um, the the telling of what was happening to May Norman, the journalist, how did that one mm. come to you? Yeah, well, the, I, I take a really long time to write a novel. <laughs> I write in several drafts that are kind of adding a layer each time. So the first draft was actually just all Chris. Um, and something that was evident to me, even though her voice came straight away and I was really happy with that, um, it felt a little bit claustrophobic and it felt to me, um, in terms of telling a larger story, that Chris is, you know, she's great, like I really love her, she's one of my favourite characters I've ever written, but she's not terribly self-aware and she's very, because she's telling a story in her own voice, she puts on a front still. (laughs) And I wanted to show, yeah, that, I guess that gap between how she's telling herself she's coping with this and how it actually looks to others. Um, So that's the first Uh, initial impulse of bringing in the reporter because we can see initially in May's news reports that she's describing this really fragile, fragile person, whereas Chris comes across, I think, in her own words as someone who's very tough. Um, and I, I liked the way that contrast would play it, out. It, yes. It, mm. it, they had some... Well, anyway, news is news for such a short time. And May is pulled off the case by her editor. But she decides that there's more to this story. What does she want to do with it? Well, I mean, as I said before, I think it just really gets under her skin. It is the first big crime story. The first. I mean, she's got great ambition to be this top crime reporter, but this is the first murder that, mm. that she's had to report on and she does find herself getting really, um, really deeply involved in a, in a psychological sense. She And she wants, you know, she's read a lot of crime stories in her life. That's what made her wanted to be the reporter. And I think she wants that... Um, solace that comes with it being solved, that feeling that things are set right now. She she can't leave it until that happens. And as a journalist, she knows that there's uh, Women's Weekly mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe even a book offer mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she wants finality. So this uh, journalist, Megan uh, Norman, gets involved in as much of the community as she can. She sort of meets, she sort of flirts with uh, one of the young policemen. She she writes about horrific animal deaths and she finds out the history of the town, about the Aboriginal massacre by Scottish, Scottish farmers. Mad Dog Morgan even had a little bit mm-hmm. of a look in there. And even the ghost stories mm. that are relevant to the town. And this is where I'd like Emily Maguire to read from her book, page page 269. It's towards the end, but it sort of sets you, gives you a really good idea of Chris and her, she says she's strong, but is she? Mm-hmm. Um, so to briefly set this up, Chris is actually because she is feeling really kind of um, haunted both by the outside world and her own demons by this stage. She's just putting a whole new um, door and window and security system in her house. By four o'clock, the workmen had left and I was sitting alone looking at my new door, thinking that I'd better get off my ass and get ready for work. That's when it started. She started. First was the cold. You think I'd been, you think I'd have been used to it by now, but it's not the kind of thing you can get used to. 
It's like someone slit your skin at the top of your spine and poured coldness in. I don't know what to do, I said aloud, and for a moment nothing happened. Then the smell of wet earth filled the kitchen. It was so strong and thick I started to gag. Just like that it went away and so did the cold. I ran to my room and started undressing, ready to chuck on my work gear and get out of there, but as soon as I pulled on my shirt, the most terrible screaming started in my head. I know it was in my head because I fell onto the bed and pulled the pillow over my face and stuck my hands over my ears and it just got louder and clearer. I don't know how long I lay like that, wishing for it to stop, but at some point it got quieter and I could hear the little girl's voice underneath. I'm cold, Chrissy. I'm cold. I'm cold. I'm so, so cold. And the wet earth was in my mouth and throat again. I threw the pillow off my face, overbalanced, crashed to the floor. The voice and the scream stopped instantly. I crouched there panting, waiting for something else or for enough nothing to know it was over. A shadow was spreading out on the wall in front of me, spreading and darkening. I pressed my hand to it and was relieved at the heat because that was a predictable thing. In the midst of it all, here was something familiar. When I brought my hand away, it was covered in blood. I ran to the kitchen, turned on the tap, but my hand was clean and dry. I noticed the house had become quiet and I was warm. I also noticed my work shirt had a big rip along the left seam. Oh, Emily McGuire. Um, so we, we wonder, we wonder, you know, is, is it ghosts or is it just Chris falling apart? And whether she can ever complete closure after this death. And I, look, I, I believe in real life you have sisters. I do, I do. And this quote once again from uh, an isolated incident. What I feel for her survives, and that hurts like battery acid every minute. But worse is that what she felt for me died with her. I will never be loved like that again. Ah, so, <laughs> so it's back to what this is really about. It's sex and violence. Now, you've, you've written other books about sex and violence. Yeah, it's my thing, apparently. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> but what is written in here is the victim blaming. Mm. You know, there's a whole march in Sydney about mm. a protest group who say, listen, you can't blame her. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's another thing almost like the, the shrines but coming from another angle that I feel really conflicted about and I wanted to write that in there, that this um, feminist group of the type that I in real life would, you know, completely support um, does hold a march because they're furious at the way Bella's case is being reported, that kind of digging for oh, what was she doing? Did she maybe get in a car, you know, trying to put blame on her? And and that's a really important thing and I think a really important political project to um, protest and speak out against victim blaming. Um, but at the same time, Chris herself is completely bewildered by it. You know, she's not um, up with feminist theory or these larger conversations and she just feels again, stunned and confused in her grief to find that these people in a big city that she's barely even ever been to, uh, you know, chanting her sister's name. Yeah. Um, May Norman uh, reports on that. She goes back to Sydney to report on that. She sort of also goes back to sort of work out a little bit about a love life. But uh, her words, this case seems to be about sex and violence. She will tell the truth about this heinous act of violence against a woman and the blokey misogynist community in which it happened. Is it 
an isolated incident. Ah, um, <laughs> that comes to the at the heart of of the novel, I think. Um, yeah, it's a it's a hard thing to talk about, um, but the the novel, you know, this is the the Bella's death is the case that is at the centre of it, and that May and others are reporting on, and obviously that Chris is grieving, um, but in fact there is this undercurrent of much less showy, much less media-worthy um, violence against women that, that is sort of constantly going on in the background. And I guess with the title, that is what I'm trying to, um, you know, draw a bit of attention to that as well, that, that this thing that happened to Bella is the thing that we're all talking about, but, but what is the context in which that's happened? Emily McGuire, I don't know whether you've read Charlotte Wood's book, The Natural Way of Things. I have. I was actually a judge on the Stella Prize, which that's <gasps> been, it's on our shortlist, which, um, yeah. Well, I just saw so much, look, mm. completely different stories. Yeah. But this whole thing about women and, you know, how mm. her, the women in her book, how they even judge themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not. No, I think, and it's one of the things I loved about that book, and I'm, I actually think is a bit of a, um, a a moment that we're having now as a larger society and as women starting to ask a lot of these questions. You know, there's been a real uptick in um, reporting on family and domestic violence and a lot more awareness um, in, in large thanks to Rosie Batty, um, but just a, a bigger kind of swell of understanding about how insidious that is. And But something I think Charlotte Wood does in her book, and, and it's something I really admired, is exactly that, the... Um, I guess internalized misogyny that a lot of women have, um, which which is really important. And I think that the characters in this too, like for example, we talked about you know when the media dig up that Nate had a history of of violence against women. Um, of course, there was context in that. There's you know a larger discussion to be had about alcohol use and his girlfriend's own violent behaviour and all of that. But I think it's really um, an important thing in there too that Chris. Um, defends his use of violence. She finds excuses for it and that that's a perfectly natural thing for her to do, it seems. Um, and I think we as a society do do that. There's um, certain men in certain circumstances that we do excuse their violence and um, women are just as complicit in that as men are. The other thing about the similarity between the two books was sex. The, the, the women were really happy to have sex mm-hmm. without... In, and um, without any gratuities, without any emotion, and it's bringing, I think, a, a whole new generation of women to my type of reading. Mm-hmm. I, I know mm-hmm. I'm old. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, no. I mean, I I just think, and it should be, you know. Yeah, I think a lot of women like sex. Yes, <laughs> and that's yes. that's fine. And and I think it's actually, you know, we talk about this as a story about sex and violence, and it is. Um, but those two things are so often linked, and that's a true thing that we need to talk about. Um, but it shouldn't get to the stage where, where they're always linked or when we only talk about sex or women's sex lives or sexual desires as something that is somehow, you know, um, being, if not forced, then, you know, they're tricked out of it or they're doing it for just to please a man or something like that and not something that, that women couldn't actually do just because it's fun. Absolutely. Well said by a, a much younger woman. I, <laughs> oh, I do it for fun too. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> now, you're, you as a writer, you've been everywhere. 
You've had the um, the writing residency at Varuna in Blue Mountains, then um, Kessing Studios in Paris, mm. and also in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! <laughs> and most uh, most recently, actually, in um, New Hampshire. Oh really? Just, yeah, just over over Christmas, I was there. I'm a um, Yes, writing residencies are a wonderful invention that as soon as I discovered them, I became extremely um, uh, invested in applying for as many as I could because, (laughs) I mean, most writers will really understand this. I think there's a dream before you start writing or become a writer, you get this fantasy idea of what the writing life is like, that it's just like long, slow days of, you know, you've got time to stare out the window and think things through and write. And and no Mm. writer I know's life is like that. It's just shoved in between everything else. It's an hour here. It's 20 minutes there. Um, And that really is the only way to get it done 90% of the time. Um, But writing residencies are this wonderful thing that if you manage to um, carve out a month from your life to go and leave from work or whatever and get someone to look after the rest of your family if that's part of your responsibilities and you can just go and actually live that fantasy writer's life for a short time. For a short time. (laughs) For a short time. (laughs) Look, and you sort of just pass through that you're you're one of the judges on on the Miles Franklin. The Stella Award. Oh, Stella. Oh, sorry. Oh, but Stella. Yes. I mean, Charlotte Wood's book is, I think, long-listed for the Miles Franklin as well. I had nothing to do with that decision, but I approve of it. Um, but the Stellar Awards, so so we have a short list of six and, and um, the natural way of things is, is on that short list, yes, yeah. which the winner will be announced very soon. Oh, okay. Well, I just thought it was quite a book. You know, uh, I hadn't read any of your books before, but I, I think I might be picking them up. Oh, because, thank you. Uh, and next book is going to be a crime detective, a crime novel, or oh, it's not really, is it? It's a victim novel. No, it's not even that, is it? It's a ripple yeah, of victim novel. Yeah, it's really hard. I, I don't I, think in terms of genre when I write. And this one, as soon as people started reading it, they were saying it's a crime novel. And I was like, so, oh, hmm. okay, that's fine with me because I like crime novels, but it's certainly not what I was thinking of. And the next one is, is um, I don't know what it is yet. It's, it's early stages. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I was thoroughly enjoyed spe- chatting with you too. So I've been talking with Emily Maguire about her book, An Isolated Incident by Pan McMillan. Thank you very much, Emily. A pleasure. Thanks, Jan. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.